from KQED. And welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, San Francisco-based artist George McCalman says that just as he was processing his own grief and anger, he found himself deluged with calls and emails from white acquaintances. Some of the messages expressed concern, but too many were clueless and empty, reflecting what he calls an echo chamber of fragility. For his latest project, McCalman collected the phrases that triggered him the most, such as here if you ever want to talk or for your self-care, and created paintings to reveal the garish truth that underlay them. George McCalman is also the author of the San Francisco Chronicles Observe column and author of the forthcoming book called Illustrated Black History. And welcome, George McCalman. Thank you. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, trying to... Uh, sort of orient myself on what is my birthday. You get into these sobering numbers on your birthday and uh, you just try to do things as normal, which I know you were trying to do. Uh, yeah. So wait, you... today is today's your birthday? <laughs> today is my birthday, yeah. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I find your work very arresting and, and powerful, and I want to talk about thank it. You. And I know you suffer through each one of these, uh, but let's go back to the genesis uh, of, of how all this began. A 15-year friendship, uh, well, fondness, mutual fondness with a lawyer, progressive friend of yours. Uh, yes. That started it all off, right? Well, I mean, to give it more context, this is language that I've been familiar with my whole life. Um, but I think what framed a more kind of uh, a focus on it was the death of George Floyd and, and just how so many of us were reeling from that. But it was really different for me and different for Black people in that we experience this trauma every single time one of us are, are killed uh, by the police in this way. And, and we, we kind of process this unto ourselves. And this was different in that uh, white people were part of the conversation really for the first time in a public way. And so it, it just kind of reflected and refracted a lot of my own emotions. And we were all kind of attending to this kind of new, this new awareness. And so that's what really kind of forced me to pay a deeper attention to it. The deeper attention brought uh, certain insights having to do with, uh, and you write about these, I know you have a philosophy as well as a fine arts background, but this idea of putting somehow the burden on you from white people to educate or define what is needed so they become, well, so victims and teacher roles bound together, as you put it. Yes, yes. Um, you know, that's also something I, I was familiar with in the corporate world. Um, there's a tentativeness that um, white people, Americans, have about speaking about race. And, and it really is just their own discomfort. Uh, it's a subject that we all need to be talking about on a daily basis. And I felt, I found a lot of the tentativeness to be fundamentally dishonest because it just kind of masked uh, people's own discomfort. And my feeling about it was that it is an uncomfortable subject. We should be talking about it. And, and the kind of lack of transparency about that just creates the awkwardness that people are trying to avoid. It made you livid. I think that's the word you use. And you turned that rage into kind of a cathartic art here, really, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think this is something that um, you know, I'm not qualified to talk about the medical, the biological aspects of this, but I really believe, um, certainly through my own existence and, the, and what I've seen in my community, is that we internalize 
um, all of this language, we metastasize it and it just harms us. And as I was staring at it, I felt just personally that I didn't want to keep absorbing this kind of one-way language. And I wanted to reflect it back. And I was at a point where I was just really angry. I was really angry for most of June and most of July. And I was just angry in a way that I, I really wanted to stare at it. I wanted to understand where it was coming from. I knew where it was coming from emotionally, but I knew it wasn't just about me and my emotions. There was a reason for it. And so I wanted to honor that and, and try to attend and create a way that I could um, get rid of that energy, basically. Talking with San Francisco-based artist George McCalman about his new show, Tell Me Three Things I Can Do, slash Return to Sender. He's also the author of the San Francisco Chronicles Observe column and author of a forthcoming book, Illustrated Black History. Actually, you've written about this. You, you, you've written about a private theory you have that we sort of store emotional pain in our bodies. And it goes back to the idea of epigenetics. It, uh, in fact, you yes. even say it has effect on our DNA intangibles. Yeah, absolutely. And and once again, I'm 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 very considerate in speaking about this publicly because I am I'm not a doctor. I am not a a qualified person to be what I, the point of view that I'm coming from is from a very personal emotional place. And I I have seen how this has affected people um and I believe that it has also um really affected the black community in this country. We are constantly mining the pain coming from external sources that is not ours. And I believe that it has, it has certainly warped my body. It has certainly warped a lot of my sense of the world at how can it not? And so the idea of just kind of attending to it and finding a way to refract some of that energy felt really necessary at this point in time for myself. And you emphasize the importance of your body's response in the creation. You felt yourself shuddering and trying to recreate uh, this reflexiveness with letter forms uh, about the broken yep. cadence, I guess, really. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, I'm a graphic designer by trade. And I, since becoming an artist four years ago, I've really kind of looked at the power of words and images in a new way really trying to understand the emotional language of information, how we share information with each other, how we intake information on a personal basis, and also through these devices that are now ubiquitous and in all of our lives. And so I wanted to create, have the, the letters reflect both the personalities of the people who, were, who had sent those notes to me and my own impression, uh, my own emotions as I received that. Actually, we're receiving a comment from someone named Billy Ray who says, I've been following George on Instagram and have come to appreciate him and love his art and commentary so much, and I appreciate his pain with all he's had to deal with, but happy he's turned it into art. What an intense time on this earth. Wonderful to have humans like him to reflect back to us. And you talk about the human level of talking about race. Uh, let me hear what you have to say on that, because uh, you know, you've alluded to it a few times, I believe, in your writing. Yeah, and I mean, this is a subject we can spend the rest of the day talking about. Um, I just think that there is a, you know, my perspective on race has formed both by being a citizen of the United States and also not being born in the United States. And I think it has given me a perspective that is both insider and outsider at the same time. 
And I look at both of those things at, at the same time, all the time. And so understanding the context, not just of how other people talk about this subject, but also what my own perspective is while honoring, you know, both of those perspectives is a, is, it's a difficult thing to do. And I, and I feel like we in this country have done a mostly terrible job of acknowledging the pain of other people. It's a pretty fundamental human thing. And the United States keeps basically saying that the pain of the black community is not something that is important enough to be honored. And so that just fundamentally to me, I just reject that. I think it's really terrible. It's a terrible thing that we are telling each other because it's something that people personally, when they feel pain, this country is really good at registering individual pain, but the idea of a community in pain is something that we haven't really focused our attention on. Again, we're talking with San Francisco-based artist George McCalman about his new show, Tell Me Three Things I Can Do, slash return to sender. And uh, if you'd like to join us, uh, I invite you to do that. Uh, if you have questions or comments for our guest, please feel free to be part of the program. You can give us a call right now at our toll-free number. 866-733-6786 is the number for your calls. If you'd like to join the conversation, if you have a reaction, a question, or comment, again, you can join us live at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. So this goes back to, in some ways, uh, well, growing up in uh, Grenada and the uh, island home and seeing those painted signs. Those were a big yeah. influence on this work, really, weren't they? Absolutely. Um, you know, my typography history is equal parts formal and equal parts uh, just inspiration. You know, I grew up on a small island, a small African island, and that um, has moved through colonization, colonial, you know, uh, aspects, and is also very African at the same time. And so the idea of just art coming from your soul and that you don't have to go to school to be to kind of find that magic within yourself is something I grew up with. But then I, I went to a university and learned the history and philosophy and theology of art and design. And so I bring that with me to everything that I do. As a listener says, this reminds me, <coughs> excuse me, of when someone dies and everyone says, let me know what I can do. And if you are grieving, yes. you can't even process what you need. Can you provide any guidance on how non-Black people can show concern without going into this dangerous territory? Well, uh, and that is a fantastic question. Um, you know, I love what uh, your reader just, your listener just asked, because it is around grief. Um, I started paying attention to this when my father died three years ago. That's really the, the point that I started looking at this. Uh, the responses were mostly about the people. Rarely did people ask me how I was doing. It was their fear of death that drove most of the conversations. And I found that fascinating. I was like, oh, I didn't realize that people really don't know how to deal with grief. And so the idea of making, making yourself uncomfortable in service to someone else for you know a few seconds of discomfort to get to the truth to the other side, uh, you know, that's basically what the white community has to do. It's like asking someone what they need instead of telling them what you think they need. Um, taking a second and saying, how can I be of service to you? How can I help? Um, I'm trying to figure this out. That's an honest human thing. No one can disparage that. 
but the idea that that I'm somehow being asked to lead a conversation that I never initiated. You know, in all of the cases, all the inspiration for these uh, quotes were emails, texts, and voicemails. And I had not initiated any of these conversations. That's the other interesting part of this. And many um, of them had uh, the word uh, I in it much more than you, as you've kind of indicated, uh, and were sort of prefabricated in many respects, perhaps even objectifying. I want to mention that this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio, and for more information about how to support KQED, simply go to kqed.org. You're listening to the forum, and I'm Michael Krasny. Again, we're talking with George McCalman, and uh, I want to actually get to the heart of this sense of... Um, what I was just talking about, the objectifying during a time of grief of uh, uh, where do white people figure into this as you see it? Uh, I mean, what do they get out of it? Uh, you, you've kind of written about this uh, in terms of what you suspect it all involves and what you hypothesize. It has to do with they're also being trapped by narratives and maybe even by religion, as I think you've pointed out, right? One of the overwhelming uh, recurring motifs that I have heard and hear is the idea of shame and embarrassment and guilt. It just, it overpowers, I, I think it really defines a lot of the white community in the United States. There's a lot of that sense of, oh, I'm trying to be a good person. And so if I, if I'm, I'm gonna try to represent that and I want you to validate <laughs> that I'm a good person, <laughs> even though I have done a really terrible job of making you feel like I'm a good person. And so there's a, there's a, a kind of, um, it's it just kind of, it locks the conversation into a place that doesn't allow it to evolve. It just like, it commands and it, it squeezes the life out of any evolution in talking about this. And it's ironic because it's supposed to be conveying empathy, right? Right. And it does the opposite. Yeah. Um, Actually, some of your language uh, comes back to, well, the importance and nuance of language uh, and how you use it. And you have uh, one of your paintings that says, we see you and we see you not seeing us. And yeah. what, came, what came to my mind immediately was, well, invisibility, Ralph Ellison. I mean, it's something that's yeah. been sort of part of, uh, I guess, what you call black consciousness for a long time now. Absolutely. And I live in a city that um, the black community is really small. And, you know, that piece that you just referenced, I did uh, for a series on gentrification on Divisadero Street. And um, that there's been so much growth and, and it's seen as a sign of success that, this, that the neighborhood has turned around, quote unquote. But there are so many black people living, on, living in those neighborhoods that feel completely invisible because they are invisible. They're not seen as part of that evolution. And, and so there's still this wide ocean, it, you know, on one side of the street is one kind of success. And then across the street is a whole other kind of existence and the two don't overlap. Well, you were part of a black brunch club. You've written about that. It made a big difference to feel that sense of collective identity and community, especially at yeah. these times. Absolutely. It is the reason that I am still living in San Francisco. I basically had to create a community for myself to feel grounded in my own culture. I probably would have moved from San Francisco by now if, if I had not done that for myself. 
And you also write about uh, the sense of white privilege in a totally different context as appropriating black culture, white culture appropriating it and sort of uh, in some ways co-opting it, or maybe not sort of, but indeed co-opting it and then discarding it. Well, I talked about in, in, the, in the previous editorial I did um, this idea of emotional colonialism. It's like this discovery, you know, this spring that the country is racist to its core. I mean, there were so many people that were just scandalized by that awareness. And, you know, for those of us who've, who've been kind of looking at this all along, it's like, where, where have you guys been? Where, where exactly have you guys been? Let me bring a caller on here. Peter joins us from Berkeley. Peter, welcome. You're on the air. Good morning. So I, I just wanted to acknowledge, like, um, I'm white, and so, of course, I'm never going to really understand what it's like for an African-American or a black person, you know, to be in the situation of, of experiencing the pain of somebody like uh, George Floyd being killed. But I can also just wanted to relate, you know, just say how much I, how irritating it must be. I can see how irritating it would be for a white person to say, telling uh, an African-American person, tell me three things to do instead of at least trying to think for themselves and trying to make some effort to like, you know, think of something that they can do proactively themselves. And yes. then, and then the, the other thing I wanted to say too was, was that towards the end, just listening, it seems like it's changed a little bit, but a lot of, I feel like a lot of conversations like this tend to be like talking about, talking about race. Like <laughs> instead of actually talking about race, it's like people saying, well, let's talk about people not talking about race, and then that's the whole discussion, and then no one ever actually talks about race. And I don't know if it's because everybody feels so uncomfortable with yes. that, or, you know, I'm not sure why, but... Well, we it. thank you for those thoughts, Peter. We're coming up to the end of the program here. You want to respond to Peter? George? Um, yes, I, 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 I basically I agree. I agree with what he said. It is annoying to be on the receiving end because it conveys... Uh, an emotional laziness, basically. It's like, I want you to tell me what I need to do so I don't have to do any thinking on my own. And some of these... And I, uh, I, I agree. We do, we do talk about talking about race and not enough just about it. Well, I think that's a good note to conclude on. Really a privilege to have you with us, and I thank you so much for joining us. Good Pleasure. luck and, and keep thank painting. You. Thank you. Thank you, and happy birthday, Michael. Thank you for that as well. And thank you, our listeners. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. Our repeated in the evening... And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, please say state. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.